0: Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. We just had the Belmont Stakes Saturday, June 8th. This year, the Belmont Stakes in New York was met with more than 150 peaceful but determined protesters at the main entrance gate. Voicing the opposition to the entire industry, many held signs which read, Horse Racing Kills Horses, and others respectfully engaged the fans to try to educate them. Notably, the demonstration produced no citations and no arrests, and it's one of the many that has taken place or is scheduled to occur around the U.S. this year. You probably are aware of the horrible ongoing situation this year at California's Santa Anita Park. and It's getting worldwide coverage. But finally, we might be at a tipping point, at that breakthrough moment where the pervasive cruelty of the horse racing industry reaches deep public awareness and when sentiment is strong enough to really change things. So why the protests? Simply to bring more attention to the pervasive cruelty that is an inextricable part of horse racing. Take a guess on how many horses die on U.S. racetracks each year. Would you say a few dozen? A hundred? A couple hundred? Well, the most often quoted number on horses dying in U.S. racetracks annually is 1,200. 1,200 unnecessary deaths all for amusement and wagering opportunities. And that 1,200 number probably underestimates the true rate to a substantial degree. For decades, the cruelty associated with horse racing has been essentially ignored and disregarded. But recently, this has begun to change. Patrick Batuello, a crusader against the cruelty of the horse racing industry, documents all of the racing and training-related equine deaths in the U.S. that have occurred since 2014. On his website, horseracingwrongs.com, Batuello includes a list of all the horses who have succumbed to racing year by year. His research documents the horse's name, the race in which each horse died, and what killed that horse if known. Pick any of the past years and scan through the list of horses that have lost their lives. It seems to go on and on with too many names to count. It's nothing short of horrific. It's an ongoing nightmare of deaths. But that's just part of the story. As Battuello states on his website, those listed are, quote, on-site deaths only. So what does that mean? It means those are the casualties of horse racing that are seen. Those are the actual numbers that are released to the public. The horses who shatter their ankles while crossing the finish line in front of crowds. The horses who suffer cardiac arrests just after galloping at breakneck speeds. The thoroughbreds who run on beautiful legs until they give out, causing the proud animals to fall over to be carted off and then put down. Or euthanized right there on the track, behind a screen, to keep the onlookers from seeing what they already know is happening. What the numbers do not include, as noted on the website, are, and I quote, The catastrophically injured, who were euthanized back at the owner's farm. The horses who perished at the over 200 private training facilities strewn across the land. The multiple thousands of retired horses who were shackled, hung, slashed, bled out, and butchered in foreign abattoirs. Those are slaughterhouses. Horse Racing Wrongs uses Freedom of Information Act requests filed with states' racing commissions as a key source to accurately account for the deaths. However, some states omit the names and numbers of horses that died during training. The fact is, the number of deaths is likely to be double the number you'd find reported anywhere, because the business of thoroughbred racing is actually fraught with deceit and secrecy. In recent months, there's been a lot of attention focused on the many deaths that have occurred at Santa Anita Park, a well-known Southern California racetrack. Since the track's racing season began on December 26, 2018, 29 horses have lost their lives at Santa Anita. And that's as of June 11, 2019. And I'll tell you, each year, many horses die at that very track. Listen to this. From 2008 to 2018, the California Horse Racing Board indicates an average of 50 deaths there per year. In last season, for comparison, 37 horses died in training or on the track at Santa Anita. But finally, the public and the press and social media have begun to show the ugly truth. Even California Senator Feinstein called, quote, for an immediate moratorium on racing at Santa Anita. Scrambling to protect their cash flow and their image, specialists have been hired to look at the track itself, in addition to investigating anything that might point to a commonality between the horses, races, or training conditions that could be implicated. There's been a lot of hand-waving and shoulder-shrugging, but whether the cause is the condition of the track, a statistical anomaly, or some other yet-to-be-identified factor, it really doesn't matter to me. The truth of the matter is, racing is an inherently cruel industry that, while touted as a sport, is actually a multi-billion dollar gambling industry. More than $100 million are wagered at the Kentucky Derby alone, where horses are overtrained, whipped repeatedly, forced to run unnaturally fast, and pumped full of drugs to mask their pain and injury. And once they're no longer useful, they're systematically discarded. And know this, when animals and gambling are combined, as in greyhound racing, cockfighting, bullfighting, and dogfighting, the animals always get abused. Horse racing is but another example of that truism. Horse racing is not a sport. It's not about the love of the animals. It's not about horses loving to run. Horse racing has everything to do with money and gambling. Now, let's talk about regulation. The regulation that does exist in the horse racing industry varies from state to state and is typically poorly enforced, which is in part why we see so much tragedy on the racetracks. Penalties for violations are trivial and often don't accomplish much and may consist of as little as a warning. The lowest-end racetracks, such as those at Racino's, which are locations that combine the slot machines and racetracks, actually allow the most rule-breaking and also receive the least regulatory oversight. Besides the patchwork of statewide regulation, there's no federal oversight of the industry. For several years, federal legislation has been introduced to address issues like drugs, track surfaces, and other safety issues, but these efforts have always failed to gain significant support. Now, to get a full picture of the extent of the cruelty in horse racing, it's worthwhile to understand what happens throughout the entire lives of the racehorses. Breeders, of course, endeavor to create fast horses. Selective breeding for speed above everything else has produced lightning-fast horses with freakishly long spindly legs to propel their 1,200-pound bodies with long, long strides the Horse Fund, a non equine protection organization, describes modern thoroughbreds as locomotives sitting atop toothpicks. They are fragile and friable, designed to run, but not to recover from running. Now, in contrast, I will tell you, free-roaming and natural breeding mustangs have especially sturdy and strong legs and hooves, appropriate to support their bodies. Some of you may remember our May 31st, 2015 show when we had the opportunity to talk to Joanne Normal, the co-founder and president of Saving Baby Equine Rescue. We talked about the story of 8 Bells, a prime example of what too often happens to racehorses. Now for those of you who don't know, 8 Bells was a beautiful thoroughbred racehorse running in the 2008 Kentucky Derby. She ran in front of what was the second largest crowd in Kentucky Derby history the crowd watched and cheered as she crossed the finish line in second place and then crumbled to the ground despite her own efforts to get up she could not and people ran to her to stop her from struggling to stand up she had shattered both front ankles and was euthanized right there on the track oh and by the way usually this is done by means of a captive bolt pistol to the head what eight bells suffered was a breakdown and i'm going to talk more about that in a couple minutes so what's notable about the death of eight bells about her being euthanized on the track is only that the world was watching this triple crown race and got to see it but actually deaths like this are very common in this industry preparation for racing begins long before a horse ever sets foot on a racetrack A thoroughbred horse's career begins when it's separated from its mother at about six months of age. It's fed a high-protein diet and forced to depend on humans who demand obedience under fear of painful punishment. Horses are taken into training at as young as 18 months of age, and many are racing by the time they're two years old. This is extremely young, considering the horse's body is not fully mature until the age of five or six. So these horses are training and racing long before their bodies are physically developed. Training these horses while they are so young puts an increased amount of stress on their underdeveloped legs and ankles, contributing to breakdowns when they are young and early lameness when they're older. But most breeders don't care as long as the horse is fast, even if for a short amount of time, enough to net a profit in the life cycle of the animal. Okay, we're going to have to take a break now. When we come back, we're going to talk about what it means for a horse to break down. I'm Dr. Lori Krishner. You're listening to Animals Today.
1: If you're like most people you have lots of plans. A financial plan an exercise plan a career plan. You also need a plan for the care of your pets when you no longer can provide it. Every day animals are sent to shelters terrified and confused because their owners have become incapacitated or died. Unfortunately many of them get euthanized. Some people don't give the future a thought. Others assume family members will care for their pets. A better way is to name caregivers and provide detailed Instructions about your pet's feeding, social, play, and health care needs. But even designated caregivers can't guarantee your pet will join a stable and loving home. Good intentions sometimes take a back seat to life's realities, like a new spouse who doesn't like animals, a sudden desire to travel the world, or the adoptive caregiver's own illness illegally enforceable pet trust offers the only assurance that your assets will be used as you wish to provide for the comfort and care of your cherished animal companions almost every state recognizes pet trusts. find out how to create one today and take steps to make sure your pet doesn't risk becoming yet another sad shelter statistic plan for your pet's lifelong well-being This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org.
0: Hey, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and thanks for listening to Animals Today. Not only can you find us on your radio dial, but you can also listen to the show by going to animalstodayradio.com, or you can subscribe to the Apple Podcast on iTunes. And remember to follow us on Facebook and join the conversation. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And consider making a donation to help support the show. And thank you for your interest and your support. Welcome back to the show. We're talking about the pervasive cruelty of the horse racing industry, and I want to remind you of a figure I mentioned earlier, and that is approximately 1,200 horses die at racetracks in the U.S. every year. I also said that the true number is likely much higher. Some die during the race, and many die just after the race. Many horses succumb to what is known as a breakdown. This occurs when their legs break, unable to withstand the forces that the horses exert upon their bodies. It occurs about one out of every 200 times a horse starts a race. Now, put simply, it means the horse's legs literally break underneath them. Their bones snap. Crumbling from repeated stress, overuse, injuries, pain masking medications, and numerous corticosteroid injections meant to keep them running when they never should have been. But by the time they break down, it's too late. The result is almost always euthanizing them, killing them right there on the track or after being carted off. The horses are killed because they are not seen as worth the investment to treat the injury, which is usually not medically possible anyway. They are a financial drain to the owners. So what causes so many racehorses to break down is a combination of selective breeding for speed and not sturdiness, racing and training at too young of an age. Training and racing while injured with conditions like bruises, microfractures, and arthritis. And the widespread use of drugs, many banned to enhance performance, mask pain, and permit training even while injured. The pressure to seek profits drives all these factors. Research shows that 90% of horses who break down have pre-existing injuries, commonly small fractures that can only be seen with advanced diagnostic imaging. By giving horses pain-masking medications, they continue running on fractures, and so the injuries never heal. They just get compounded. Now, what happens to the horses who manage to survive a career of racing without breaking down and getting killed? Now, the average natural lifespan of a racehorse should be 25 to 30 years, and they only race for 4 to 5 years. So how do they live out their retirements? Well, one might think they were lax in green fields and rolling meadows lovingly cared for by country families whose children enjoyed gently rides with them on tree-shaded, brittle paths. Well, that's just not reality. An injured and aging horse are no longer profitable for their owners. They are literally discarded or sold for next to nothing. Owners don't want the burden. The race tracks, which house the horses want their stall spaces for prime competitors. So racehorses at the end of their usual careers typically get sold for trivial amounts, maybe $50 each. And then they begin a long, arduous transport in trailer or truck to meet their ultimate ending. At slaughterhouses, in countries that permit the consumption of horse meat. Usually that means Canada or Mexico. The journey itself is terrifying and inhumane. The horses are forced to travel sometimes for more than 24 hours straight without food, water, or rest in crowded trucks. Many die in transit. And once at slaughterhouses, the killing process is rarely quick and humane. I'll just leave it at that. And by the way, the meat from horses should not be, but is, consumed by people. According to the Humane Society of the United States, they say... Unlike animals raised for food, the vast majority of horses sent to slaughter will have ingested or been treated or injected with multiple chemical substances that are known to be dangerous to humans, untested on humans, or specifically prohibited for use in animals raised for human consumption. So what is the future of horse racing? There's no way to fix this industry. It's inherently cruel and corrupt and operates at the expense of the horses. You know, it wasn't long ago that another cruel and corrupt industry built on animal abuse was legal in much of the United States. That's greyhound racing. In an amazing story which should serve as a model for what ought to happen to horse racing, greyhound racing has nearly ended in the U.S. Similar to horse racing, dog racing is incredibly cruel and fueled by gambling. Thanks to animal activists and advocacy groups, greyhound racing is now illegal in 40 states. In 2018, citizens of Florida, previously a big dog racing state, voted to ban dog racing, and that's gonna take effect soon. Greyhound racing is almost history. Here are some things you can do to help horses and to put an end to this cruelty. Attend one of the upcoming protests. Show your passion. Don't go to racetracks. Don't bet on horses or attend parties celebrating horse racing. Educate your friends and family about the evils of the horse racing industry. When you learn about new horse racing deaths, talk about it and post it on social media. Spread the word. Write your legislators and tell them how you feel. Learn more about the issues in current news. I think the best single resource now is horseracingwrongs.com. And of course, share this episode of Animals Today with the people you know who need to hear it. Now, one final thought. I firmly believe that the strongest opponents of thoroughbred racing should be recreational equestrians. These are the people who claim to love horses, who spend a lot of time with horses. They hang out at stables. They love the horse culture. You know who I'm talking about. Regrettably, it's my experience that this group is almost silent when it comes to the pervasive cruelty related to racing, when in fact, they should be taking the lead on this campaign. All horse lovers, we need to hear your voices. You are listening to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Don't go away. More with the show right after the break. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner from Animals Today Radio Show, and here's an idea for you and your family if you're thinking about adopting one or more dogs. Adopt with the big picture in mind. What I mean by that is to consider adopting dogs that are less popular and therefore harder to place and more likely to get euthanized due to shelter overcrowding. Many shelters are swamped with pit bulls and pit mixes and chihuahuas and chihuahua mixes, so why not adopt one or more of these breeds and really save a life? You can also adopt senior dogs, black dogs who are unfairly stigmatized by some people, and disabled dogs. My friend adopted a three-legged dog who is as happy as can be. When you adopt one or more of these special dogs or cats, you really are doing something about the euthanasia rate. So think about if one of these wonderful creatures can find a place in your heart and home. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner from Animals Today. Most people know that chocolate is dangerous for dogs and cats to eat. But did you know that coffee and tea are dangerous for pets too? There are many foods you should not let your pet eat, like onion, garlic, yeast dough, and even avocado. Grapes and raisins are especially toxic to dogs too. Even certain plants and flowers can be toxic or deadly to pets. Cats should not be allowed to eat lilies, daffodils, tulips, or sago palm. And make sure your dogs do not eat azalea, lilies, or sago either. Another danger area, especially with dogs, is eating medicine meant for people. So make sure pills are out of your pet's reach and in safe containers. And of course, leftover bones can crack and cause choking, so don't give bones to dogs. Remember these pet safety tips to keep your pets healthy and happy all year round. This message is presented by Advancing Interests of Animals. Visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org.
3: Welcome back to Animals Today. Bob Ferber is with us again. Hey, Bob. Hey, Peter. How are you? Okay. So uh, for those of you who are new to the show, Bob is uh, one of our uh, supreme legal experts. He's a former animal cruelty prosecutor in Los Angeles, and he uh, devotes a tremendous amount of his time, uh, even after that uh, long stint to helping animals. And uh, Bob, how many animals do you have at home these days?
2: Now, you know that I can't really (laughs) admit that. (laughs) Okay. um, I always tell people, uh, define the word have. Okay. Uh, Until we change the laws and allow the people to have as many as they can care for versus Mm. an arbitrary number, which is what most cities have. Oh, interesting Um, point. I'll just say that I have... uh, and and there's never enough because there's always more that need help (laughs) okay that's (laughs) i've got my fair share (laughs) that's
3: really sweet okay so we want to talk about two quick stories here one uh, related to a restaurateur in new york city let's start with him he is got a couple of restaurants and a complaint has been filed against him and he is facing some serious fines for not recognizing service animals what's the deal there
2: That's right. I would start off by saying that this story, if I saw it 30 years ago, it would make sense. But in the year 2019, it doesn't. Uh, He's refusing, blatantly refusing, to allow service animals or people with service animals to eat in his restaurant. He refuses to make any accommodations and uh, is boldly defying uh... the americans with disability act uh... and it's kind of stunning to me especially that it's happening in a restaurant in manhattan uh... his fines i believe it at last count were something about forty seven thousand uh, dollars he has virtually no legal defense at all uh, the issues that come up with restaurant tours or restaurants allowing service animals is usually about how much accommodation you have to make do you have to force them to be on a patio? Do you force? The, do you require them to be off to the, in a corner? Do you require the dog to be trained? Or obviously, not to, you know. There are limitations on what a service animal is allowed to do. They can't be disruptive. But this uh, restaurant owner, it, it just defies explanation. He's just ignoring and refusing to obey federal law. And um, the city of L.A. justifiably is coming down hard on him.
3: You said the city of L.A.
2: I'm sorry. City of New York. City of New York. Thank you. Dude. And uh, yeah, there's literally no legal defense. Um, so it, uh, it's outrageous. And uh, I see no legal defense whatsoever.
3: And so what happens if a fine is is levied and it just sits out there till he pays it? Can he be in prison for not paying this fine?
2: Well, actually not. It, it, there are, The Americans with Disability Act is a federal law, that, uh, but most states uh, have laws that uh, basically mimic the federal law, or the, what they do is they say that whatever the federal law is, we follow that law. Uh, the law does not impose prison. Uh, but it does it, it does allow heavy fines. Uh, actually, the federal law doesn't, but this, the various cities and states that enforce it, like in this case it's New York City, they have the ability to make the laws stiffer and to impose jail or if they wanted to. My understanding with the New York City law is that uh, they just can keep imposing these fines, and he will be in contempt of court if he, at some point, if the court imposes these fines or enforces them, he will, could then theoretically go to jail. I think it's unlikely that we'll ever see him go to jail. But what the leverage here with, legally is that the city can take away his licenses. Uh, the oh, article wow. points out that he is proud of serving fine wines. In fact, the photograph in the newspaper article shows him holding a glass of red wine. The local alcohol and beverage control for New York State can take those those licenses away. They can take his business license away. So there's various ways that they can leverage and force him to obey these laws. But realistically, I doubt very much that he would go to jail. But if it gets to the point where he absolutely refuses and and, uh, he gets a lawyer that somehow brings it into a courtroom and then he still refuses to pay, then that would be contempt of court. But I doubt very much that we would get that far. Uh, He he couldn't be that stupid really (laughs) to get that to that point. So we'll have to see what happens, though.
3: Guy sounds like a a real jerk with an attitude. Um,
2: It really is. It's Beyond belief, and and just so your listeners know, um, the laws don't require that you have to sit next to you know. a Service dog is allowed to pee on to, you know to pee on a table or be barking or disruptive. It's just reasonable accommodations. So his defiant attitude makes no sense because the law doesn't require him to do anything that would be disruptive yeah. to the restaurant to his other patrons. So this is why I. I think he is kind of a jerk, and uh, I hope the city continues to come down very hard on him.
3: Okay, so there is a different uh, story. This goes to the airlines, which we've spoken about before. A former Delta passenger claims to have been attacked by an emotional support dog and is suing the airline. This is a situation nobody wants to hear about. What happened here?
2: There was an emotional support dog that was, I believe, sitting on the lap of the passenger, of his owner. And uh, under uh, the federal law, you are allowed to bring a service animal or what's known as an emotional support animal. Now, over time, and you and I have talked about this, Peter, and you've had it as a subject on your show, uh, we've seen an evolution of this where the airlines have come down on – what some people would say pretty outrageous examples of emotional support animals from uh, there was the famous pigs can fly, but somebody brought in emotional support of, of, a pig we've had some farm animals um, uh, pretty extreme examples where most people would agree that that really isn 't appropriate in a confined area like an airplane, so they 've limited pretty much to uh, to dogs and cats. But, and they've also uh, imposed restrictions on the breed of dogs, which is somewhat controversial. They've pretty much eliminated pit bulls from being service or support animals on planes. But except for that, pretty much it's open season. That if right now the state of the law is that if you declare that you have a cat or a dog that provides emotional support for you and that this is needed for you to be able to be comfortable on an airplane you're allowed to bring that animal on each airline has different r- rules about whether you give them 5 days notice uh you fill out forms health forms uh there's various rules and it's scattered all over anybody who has uh, re- flown with a serv- with with their, one of their animals even not A service animal or a support animal, just any animal, you know that you call in advance and you get all the rules about this is what you do, this is where you show up, whatever. But the rules vary, and in this case, this particular dog apparently, for whatever reasons, and the facts from what I can tell are not really clear as to exactly how this happened, but at some point, this emotional support animal, according to the news article, quote, unquote, mauled Uh, A passenger sitting next to him. And uh, he's now suing the airline for a lot of money and claiming a bunch of things that he's saying the airline should have done. And this actually, this lawsuit could have a huge impact and repercussions on the airline industry and people who travel right now with service or emotional support animals. And when I, I mean, not just you know, fluffy that comes along with you because you're scared of flying, but, you know, somebody severely disabled that needs, needs to have a service animal, either they're blind or they have some other disability, where they can't function without this service animal, this lawsuit could have repercussions.
3: Let me uh, ask you to clarify, even though in this case it's an emotional support animal, you're saying that this could bleed over to the service animal regulations?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, for the time, Right now, the airlines pretty much treat both of them the same. And what he is claiming, uh, he claims in the lawsuit that regardless of whether it was a service or any kind of animal, that he's faulting the airline for not having the animal muzzled, yeah. restrained. He, he's complaining that the animal should have been crated, that all animals should be crated, that any animal coming on a plane, that there should be a pre-authorization process where uh, somebody, an independent trainer or something where the airline certifies that the animal, that specific animal, has been examined, evaluated, behavior tested, and that can be certified that it can be safe on an airplane. The, so he's he's putting in the lawsuit things that he said they – he's faulting them for not doing these things. And the repercussions are that if he wins or if the airlines are intimidated in a way that they change procedures because of this lawsuit, what we could see is that not just uh, emotional support animals but even service animals might have to go through very, very – Uh, severe restrictions before they can be allowed on an airplane. And this could really have a big impact on the disabled who rely on these animals to get anywhere. A lot of people may not know that uh, the law doesn't allow any animal to be a service animal. A service animal basically still has to behave in a situation around other people. In fact, Peter, I can tell you that I had a criminal case years ago with a quadriplegic who had a service animal that was very protective. And she needed it because not only was she a quadriplegic, she had actually been sexually assaulted while she was a quadriplegic. And she ended up getting a service dog that was protective of her as well as performing things that she needed. Well, it turns out that the dog was taken away from her. And she complained, this was in Los Angeles, she complained in court that there was, we could not take away a service animal for these reasons, even though it had injured somebody or injured several people, because it was needed for her, for her disability. Uh, The ruling ended up that she did lose the
3: animal.
2: Mm. And it established clearly that a service animal, and I support animal have to behave. So this lawsuit is about what rules do we create or are the airlines going to create as a result of this lawsuit to avoid being sued in the future? Whether or not the airlines will fight this lawsuit, settle it, remains to be seen, but I think that just the mere lawsuit itself is going to force the airlines to come up with some rules that I hope are not draconian and that are reasonable. But You know, in the end, Peter, it's a It's a very difficult situation. You have people stuffed into a metal tube with wings on it.
3: You and I are going to follow both of these cases, and if anything uh, newsworthy happens on either one, we can talk further, okay?
2: Excellent. You take care.
3: Uh, Forever, thank you very much.
2: You're welcome.
0: Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at animalstodayradio.com. At
3: animalstodayradio.com.
0: And visit us on Facebook.
3: And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's animalstodayradio.com. Thanks for listening.
0: Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner. And this Animals Today Minute is brought to you by the nonprofit animal welfare organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org. With Independence Day just around the corner, today's Animals Today Minute is about 4th of July pet safety. Did you know that more pets go missing on July 4th than any other day of the year? And July 5th is the busiest day of the year for many of the animal shelters in the U.S. due to the influx of lost animals who have run away from home in fear due to the fireworks. That's a big reason to think about how to keep your pet safe and secure during the upcoming holiday. The 4th of July can be packed with fun for people. Cookouts, warm weather, pool parties, friends, and fireworks. But it can be a very stressful and anxious time for your dogs and cats. As with any holiday for most pets, they are happiest when they can stick to the routine as much as possible. If you live near a location where fireworks displays take place, or if your neighbors like to shoot off fireworks themselves, the loud noises and the bright lights can really spook your animals. Just being there with your animals can be very comforting to them. But if you need to leave your home or apartment, maybe you're going to a party or you want to check out a fireworks display, then most experts suggest letting them hang out in a secure and quiet room in your home, like a bedroom or a bathroom furthest away from the commotion outside. Of course, provide plenty of water and their favorite blankets, and for cats, their kitty litter. If your pets get very anxious, speak to your vet or a behaviorist ahead of time to talk about your options, which may include medication or CBD. For some animals, the security of being in a crate, maybe even partially covered, is helpful, and sounds from a television or a radio may mask some of the noise outside. Look into those compression garments for your dogs, too, which are supposed to be soothing, but you might want to give them a try ahead of time to see if your dog will wear it. Now, of course, you don't want to take your animals to fireworks displays. It's just too frightening, and dogs may just get so freaked out that they try to escape and run away. So please don't bring them along. And it should go without saying, never leave your dogs unattended in your backyard when fireworks might be set off. Their fear might cause them to escape in ways they have never managed before. If you entertain and have guests over around the 4th of July, other issues arise that you want to anticipate. First, if your dogs like being out amongst your guests and you want them there, guard against them getting a hold of things they should not eat or drink. Grapes, raisins, chocolate, and alcohol are common hazards that can cause serious illness in dogs. And don't let your dogs sneak any uncooked meat on the way to the grill, as the bacteria in it can sicken them as well. Ask your guests not to feed your pets food scraps. You want to keep their diets routine to avoid gastrointestinal distress. Make sure, and this is key, make sure your guests don't let your pets sneak out a door and get out where they can quickly get lost. Now, if you want to or need to travel with your pets, we all love taking our pets along on our adventures, right? Right? Well, all the usual precautions apply, and you want to plan appropriately their food, medicines, crates, whatever your pets need to travel happily and safely. And around the fourth, be extra mindful of the anxiety and fearfulness that fireworks can induce in your pets, especially when away from familiar surroundings. And, of course, it's a good time to make sure your pet's ID tags are being worn and show your current contact information. And their chips have your current information as well. Hopefully, no one listening needs reminding about getting their pets microchipped, right? Okay, so my bottom line, enjoy the holidays, but keep your pets safe and secure in your home. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. This is fun. Let's talk about popular songs about cats. And some of these are from one of my favorite books called Planet Cat, a catalogue.
3: Yeah, I like that one.
0: Yep. I caught, I taught a putty cat. Remember that one?
3: <laughs> that that's a song?
0: Yeah. Oh. The song written by Alan Levingston, Billy May, and Warren Foster is about the cartoon cat and canary duo Sylvester and Tweety. This was in 1950. It was performed by the legendary cartoon voiceover artist Mel Blanc. Yeah. The Siamese Cat Song. This song was recorded by Peggy Lee for the Walt Disney film Lady and the Tramp in 1955. Peggy Lee? Wow. Tom cat. Yeah. In 1963. This song about a cat who loved to strut around town was the rooftop singer's follow-up to their 1963 number one hit, Walk Right In. In this ditty, when Ringtail Tom goes out, quote, all the other cats in the neighborhood, they begin to shout. Oh, maybe that is inspiration for Stray Cat Strut. I'm gonna to get to that. Oh. Walking My Cat Named Dog. Yeah, I know that you one. You know that one. Yeah. 1966, Norma Tanega had a hit record with this song. She actually had a cat named Dog that she used to love taking for walks around the neighborhood.
3: You know, it, in the old days, if you remember, we used to play that on our radio show when we were allowed to play music.
0: Yes, the good old days. Do you want me to sing it for no, you? No, no. Oh, good. The Cat in the Window. 1967. Both Petula Clark and the Turtles recorded the song. Wow! Oh. The Cat Came Back in 1976 by the Muppets. Stray Cat Strut 1981 by the Stray Cats. That was a good one. Smelly Cat. Smelly Cat. 1995 performed by Phoebe Buffay. That's funny. Brownie the Cat in 2001. The song recorded by the Japanese rock band Brilliant Green. Maybe I don't like
3: this book as much as I thought.
0: (laughs) Okay, I'll stop there. How about Felix the Cat? Remember that? Yeah, the wonderful, wonderful cat. Growing up, do you remember that cartoon?
3: Very well. Very well.
0: He had a big... Bag, bag of, of tricks. tricks right yeah. when he would cross a lake he had a
3: kid a boat hit... in his bag
0: of tricks, right his bag turned into a canoe oh really when he had to pick some apples from a tree he had a portable escalator in his bag of tricks remember that
3: <laughs> no i don't remember okay. that but that's I... because my parents let me out of my room once in a while i wasn't locked in there like you were.
0: <laughs> well you don't remember kimba the white lion there was no kimba in my neighborhood maybe they didn't show that in the east coast kimba the white lion kimba the friendly white lion and I think I told you when I was growing up, I would have a recurring dream where Kimba, the friendly white line, attacked me. Friendly. What do you think that means? <laughs>
3: no. Boy, oh boy. Uh, maybe people can uh, email in their suggestions, their interpretation. Sh- yeah,
0: no, I probably should have received some sort of counseling for that, don't you think?
3: That and other things, yeah.
0: Okay, don't minimize it. It was scary time for me.
3: Does it still come back once in a while, Kimba?
0: No, Kimba hasn't appeared in my dreams in okay. decades.
3: good. Well, that segment was a complete catastrophe, Lori.
0: Oh, come on. You liked it. Okay. Are we finished now? We're finished. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings shared in our planet, the animals.
1: As temperatures climb, please remember never to leave your dog in the car, even for just a minute. Because even with the windows cracked and your car parked in the shade, the temperature inside can climb up in a matter of minutes, high enough to kill your pet. If you love your dog, leave them at home. And if you see a dog or other pet in a car, you may only have a minute to save their life. Here are a couple steps you can take. Make an announcement in the store or business that the car is parked nearest to. Also, call the police department or animal control right away. Remember, it only takes a minute or two for a dog to get seriously ill or die in a car on a warm day. So swift action can save a life. Dogs are unable to cool themselves the way people can, so never leave a dog or any animal inside a car on a warm day, not even for a minute. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org.